Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Plowline Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Tunnell, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, good morning. I'm Jerry Bellarosa Tunnell, and happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. We're here with uh, a colleague and co-facilitator of, all, of ours, Chris Hudima, and we're going to be digging into a conversation on a myriad of, of subjects. But before we do... Before we start, and friend, colleague, and friend... And friend... Right, you're, fellow, you're our friend. fellow podcaster right now. <laughs> anyway, so before we begin, um, we'd like to begin by acknowledging that those of us who are gathering in the Seattle, Washington area north, we are on the ancestral homelands of the Coast Salish people who have lived in the Salish Sea Basin since time immemorial. We respect this place and honor the sacred spiritual connection to the land, water, and its people, past, present, and future. And by acknowledging these lands and their original indigenous inhabitants, we reach back to our own indigenous roots and reflect on the impacts of colonialism and the lands from which all our people come. We are connected to our ancestors through this connection to land, for the land is what connects us all. I think it's also critical for us to acknowledge that this country would not exist if it wasn't for the free and slave labor of black people and the contributions of Chinese railroad workers in helping complete the most important construction project in the mid-19th century America. And also to add to the mix of acknowledgement that our country has failed to do, I'd like to honor the ancestors of the Filipino Monongs who played a significant role in building the farm workers movement in the 1920s and 1930s, organizing and striking alongside the Mexican immigrants of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Herta. It is also critical for us to acknowledge and honor the legacy of the African, Asian, indigenous, and native diaspora and the knowledge to care for these lands and the skills to build the America we all share today. So please join me in taking a moment to honor the land of the traditional people in the territory in which you stand. Today, we honor the Tulalip tribes and allied bands for the enduring care and protection of this land and also honor the life and labor of the black, Asian, native, and indigenous communities by expressing our deepest respect and gratitude. So thank you. It's easy to, it's easy as a European American to uh, listen to or participate in these land acknowledgements when we're doing them before meetings and before um, uh, organizational starts and wonder why are we doing this uh, you know are we doing this because we need you know we're we're paying tribute to everybody else and um and we're just going to choose to ignore ourselves and i think that there's an important line in that land acknowledgement which uh we've helped write into a couple different organizations in the area and it's a piece that i think is extraordinarily important to add into your land acknowledgements because it is where I, as a European-American, sit in that land acknowledgement, which is as we acknowledge the land and the people that cared for this land before us, we reach back to our own indigeneity and to the lands in which they came, and we reflect on our origins there 
and the effects of colonization as it had on them and in turn as it had on the rest of the world as colonization spread out across the globe. That is where our starting point is. That is where, and the reason why that's starting, our starting point is because there's nothing, nothing indigenous about white. White is white. It, it is representative of exactly what it is, a blank slate, something that can be put over. It's not, there's no, no genetic connection to it. There's no biological connection to it. It is a racial construct that puts people of European descent who are the, um, are the heirs to colonization um, in a box. And, um, and that box is extraordinarily harmful. It is the effects of colonization on us. It is our colonization. And it is the evolution of colonization within a group of people to the point where it's removed indigeneity completely from the equation. And that is, that is, uh, that's dangerous. Yes, it is. <clears throat> Thank you so much for saying that. Um, I'd like to uh, introduce our friend and our colleague, Chris Hudima, and tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. Hey, thank you. Um, thanks for having me here today. A little bit about myself. Um, I work in higher education. I've worked at a local um, college, community college, for over 12, 20 years now. Jeez. Uh, I'm a, a mom, a daughter, uh, hopefully a good friend to folks and been working a lot within um, the college community in particular to undo institutional racism. We, I've been a part of um, an organizing group that has worked closely with the People's Institute over many years since like 2003 to do that work. And as most of us who have been working in organizations, we know it's uh, for the long haul and uh, there's ups and downs and gains and losses, and so here we are today trying to do things, again, um, that are impactful for undoing racism and regaining our humanity. And I think uh, there's new ways of doing things, and I um, appreciate being invited here because I think this is a new way for um, some of us who have been doing work in organizations to look at how we organize and to undo this system and undo colonization and dismantle whiteness. Mm. How does a person of European descent dismantle whiteness? It's something that you mm -hmm. both were born with. Well, just saying that it's, uh, I think it's great that I'm sitting here, brown, indigenous <laughs> <laughs> person speaking with two people of European descent. But how do you all dismantle whiteness when something, it was something that you were born with, it's something you walk around with every single day? How do you dismantle that, Jeremy? Um, I, it, it's, uh, it's through a cultivation of, of, uh, of self-reflection, self-awareness, and um, beginning to listen and reach back to um, to to reach back to the voice that's behind ego, um, and that voice is uh, you know operates like a silent wind. It's difficult to listen to. Uh, you have to quiet the mind. You have to quiet the opinions and bias and prejudice. You have to recognize those things for what they are, and that means you're you need to develop a practice, and that practice takes time. It takes effort. It takes concentration. 
Intention, a lot of intention. Yeah. And there's, you know, progression along the way. I, I was thinking this morning, the first time I really had a breakthrough around understanding whiteness and the damage that it has done, whether I personally had a hand at hand in it or not. <clears throat> I was at a Encore conference mm-hmm. and I had been through just like an amazingly, um, an amazing uh, class that was so emotional it just finally broke through all the chatter in my head, all the intellectual, all the way that we use our intellect and stay in our heads in this conversation, rather than going down into our hearts to really understand what's happening to us, which is a dehumanization process, Mm. which is you have to feel that, right? You get to know it, you get to know your history, you get to know all these pieces in your head, but at some point you have to bring it into your heart. And I just remember going up to the director of diversity at the college at the time. I sought her out. There was like thousands of people there, but I found her. And I wanted to explain to her like what I was feeling. And then I just broke down in tears. Like mm. I was just sobbing. And I didn't even in that moment actually understand why I was so in despair. But I had just felt all the harm and damage and despair that I could in that moment. Um, so that, that was the start. And then I just knew that... I had a part to play, I didn't know what that looked like. And what's interesting to me, because I hear a lot, like we talk a lot about white fragility and whites pushing back, like they can't handle this. And at any given day, last week, I heard another white woman declare how knowing the history, like critical race theory, um, places whites in a space of guilt and shame and victimizes us. And I reject that. I think you will go through your process with that, of course, right? Because as you're sorting through, you're going to, in a perfect world, take responsibility for your part in that and where you can have a part to play in that. But if you stay in guilt and shame, that's a choice you're making. Mm -hmm. You're choosing to stay in a space of being victimized. You take responsibility and you can move through that, right? And that comes back to practice, like Jeremy was saying, with however you build your strength. For some people, they reach back into nature. For some people, they have a spiritual practice. Others have a religious practice. Don't care. Whatever it is, find and build one (laughs) and maintain it. Because you do need that strength to keep going because um, colonization and white supremacy just tears us apart. Like it just tears bits and pieces and chunks and pretty soon we don't know who we are and what we're doing. Um, But in that harm, that fear, that anger that we build, we continue to um, do harm. So, yeah, we have to bring it about and and stay with our journey, stay with that pathway. It's it's so interesting. Um, I'm so curious, right? It's like I try to remain in this as a, uh, you know, person of, um, you know, that that identify with the uh, BIPOC community. I just I, I just find myself in this place of curiosity, like you're talking about, you know, that that guilt and that shame. And I can understand that. But with who you are and how you navigate the world, you also have um, power and privilege. And so why would you how do you share that or how do you share that as white people? <laughs> well, I would say we aren't. We are socialized in this country not to recognize or and then not to acknowledge our power and privilege. So it's not like we go around going, 
oh, well, I have all this power and privilege. That's something, you know, in my own journey, I learned through many trainings, many conversations. Like you go to trainings and you find out, oh, this is a power analysis. This is how you do this, right? (laughs) But then you actually have to do the work of it. And how do I show up in my community? How do I show up in my church? How do I show up at my work? How do you mind? I carry power and privilege, okay, but it's there's nothing laid out for us that says this is how this shows up. So it does, again, take a lot of work, training, intention, conversations, and I think just real life experiences, because like, you know, Jerry, even if I, if you and I hang out, right? Mm-hmm. At any given time, I can activate my power and privilege, right? <laughs> it just shows up. If I'm not aware of that, sometimes that could benefit you, sometimes that could harm you, right? right? right. And I don't always know that it's showing up in that moment either, because we are so, I just, I want to do a PhD on socialization, swear. <laughs> it's so invisible to us. We have to do so much work to not only uncover it, but keep it at the forefront. Right. And so I think that's that's the game, right? That's the game that messes with white folk when we're in this work of how we're showing up, how we need to show up, and what are we doing? Because it's just given. Right. I mean, it's I, I feel yeah, like but who knew who knew that it was just given. Right. right. Jeremy, how do you how do you answer that? How do you share your power and privilege or redistribute that power and privilege? Well, I think I think first before I answer that, I think uh, it's it's it is just given. But we've created these dynamics in which um, in which it signals um, people, individuals and groups um, to to sway their um, to sway their attention in one direction or the other. Um, I'm six foot, almost two. Um, I'm, you know, 250 pounds, a little less. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm white, male. Um, cisgender, I, I'm heterosexual, cisgender, heterosexual, yeah. broad-shouldered. I can walk into a room and 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 that attention and uh, can be given to me um, and, and has most of my life. And the older I get, that diminishes. But um, which is, you know, which is, quote unquote, ageism. Uh, but, um, you know, so so um, so there's a, a flow and a peak to that. And, and, and there's a signal that that somehow this exterior feature of who I am um, signals that. Um, how I share it is, is I is I is I get off the stage. Um, you know, I've learned um, I, I learned a long time ago. Um, I was uh, I was leading I was leading men's small groups um, in when I when I was involved in the church and and in particular we were doing um, we were we were following the twelve steps the same ones that are in Alcoholics Anonymous or anything else except that we were doing it for sin um, and uh, and one of the things that um, that became very obvious to me in leading those groups is that um, I could lead in multiple ways. One of the ways that was easy for me to lead was I could just show up and I could start talking and I could, you know, and I could, I I could take over, I could take over the conversation. But as things kind of went on, I realized that my silence was, um, was um, even more powerful. And, um, and that, uh, and that in fact, if, um, in, uh, and that taught me that I could, I could learn that in other situations, I could be a leader without ever leading. And, um, and so when you and I started having this conversation and you and I started um, doing this work together, um, you know, the beginning of our relationship was very much, um, uh, your standard patriarchal, you know, boy, girl <laughs> relationship. 
You know, right. like I'm in charge. I, I drive the car. You, you, you know, you know, metaphorically, I drive the car. You're, you know, I, I need a, I need a co-pilot, right? And then I've learned that, um, you know, that that um, I can be more, I can be far more effective, especially in this conversation and in this work, by not, by by not t- getting in the driver's seat, by not taking the stage, by not holding onto the mic, by not, right, like. So, um, so th- this conversation can be perpetuated far greater depending on the audience. That's important, depending on the audience, than uh, and the dynamic of the of the group dynamic, um, than than me being upfront, holding some some sort, telling people this is what we need to do. Th- there's a time and a place for that in this conversation of whiteness, right? There's mm-hmm. a com- there there is a moment, and but they're rare. When I'm around a group of white people and they are unable to recognize, um, to recognize the self behind the identity um, that they've that they've invested in in white American, and um, and there is a moment where I am able to say, "You got to wake up," and 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 this is what you need to do in order to do that, and I want you to leave this place and i want you to begin that work and if you don't then um then you are failing on the next generation there's a place for that but it's very 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 small so if you're in a space if both of you are in a space where um you know it's predominantly people of european descent you both know that you shouldn't be taking taking up a whole lot of space and you know there is a mix of individuals and you know automatically jeremy we've we've experienced it before that we could walk into the room and because you are a six two blonde hair blue eye cisgendered heterosexual male the power automatically goes to you and not me right right um how do you how do you create the space to ensure that the people that are non-white receives the acknowledgement and the power when the dominant space is predominantly white, what do you? Wh- what's your action on that? Well, I think let's. I mean, let's use the example of you and I, um, because it's a lot like um, learning to dance with a dance partner. Um, so part of that is I can create that space, but you've got to initiate. Um, you've got to initiate a moment. So um, it's kind of like kung fu, right? Like. The attention might be in one direction, uh, but but you always seem to find your moment to be able to to interject um, and to right. But sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes for BIPOC, um, it's a little intimidating for us to to interject, right? Because then we could, you know, I mean, of course, there's there's different perspectives of how individuals would look at us right so so for example you and i um i was a keynote at one of the community colleges i walked in we both walked in and the person that was setting things up addressed you and not me right and how did we handle that i don't know what did we do i turned to you yes (laughs) i just wanted to make sure that you 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 saw the same thing that i did (laughs) yeah i turned to you like you're talking to the wrong person yeah exactly exactly Chris I have a so well um, I just want to say and sometimes (laughs) it is oddly that simple 
right? Yeah. Because people are making presumptions based on how they're reading the power and privilege in the room and right. who holds that. Right. So for us, you know, I was thinking in terms of like, uh, yeah, when you're in a meeting, when you're, and it doesn't matter where you are, if you're in a store, it, it, you're just basically, you may command that one particular moment in order to turn it over to your BIPOC friend or colleague, right? Yep. So, um, see, I'm so curious about this. It's like the, the, the sociology behind being, you know, white. More PhDs. BIPOC. I know, right? <laughs> I know, exactly. I could go a little bit deeper into this. I, I'm like, just like, you know, this is awesome. So for you, Chris, if, um, how do you handle or what do you do when you are in a room of, you know, mixed, you know, people who are identifying in a mixed way, right? You have BIPOC and you have, um, you know, white women. You know, there, there is an adage that says that when a white woman cries, a black man dies. Mm-hmm. So when, when you're doing your work and you see white women crying because all of a sudden they have this epiphany that, oh my goodness, I didn't want to do this. How, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you handle how do you handle that? Well, and that's in, that's a good question because sometimes I've been that woman, right? Because you know, you and I have worked together, and I tend to be more emotional, empathetic. I'm picking up my feelings. I'm picking up other people's feelings. Right? <laughs> At some point, it's going to come out. And what I've found in my um, experience is that for me personally, there have been times when I've tried not to. Like I've been like, okay, this is not the moment you're going to cry. This is not. And guess what? Like that. Then it hits me like a tsunami, and I literally have no control in that moment. But I think the distinction that's really important there is, are you using the tears to be a block and a distraction and to call attention so that then you become the victim and everyone wants to save you as the poor white woman in that moment? Or are you really just so tapped into the moment and the experience and what's happening and you're having an emotional response and you're feeling it and moving through? Like, mm-hmm. because we all have to feel it to move through. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, even in that space, I know I have privilege because I know that there are women of color who I don't know how they do it, but they find the strength, I think, just out of survival to not cry. Like, I can't imagine there aren't also emotional, empathetic, you know, BIPOC women who in that moment, but I just don't know how they don't cry. I don't. I, that's, that's mystery to me because I have forcibly, like I've pinched myself. I've tried to do things to keep myself from crying at certain times. It's not like I go around crying all the time. But I, I can just in my head remember certain spaces and times when I've done that. I could not help myself. But usually what I've done, I've learned to do is to say, give me a second. Just give me a second. And I'm usually trying to speak my truth in that moment, which is, from a space of trying to break down racism and institutional racism. So I'm trying to get to my point, which I feel is somehow important in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't let the emotion keep me from doing that. And I don't use it as a space of victim. And we have primed people to be in difficult trainings. And specifically, I have coached white women who are going into those trainings. Like we have learned to orient white women going into some of these um, spaces about their tears. And even better about caretaking other white women who are showing tears, because that's even more dangerous, actually, Mm. because you have one white woman who cries and then you have 10 others who are witnessing this and saying, oh, everyone's being mean to her. 
Mm. And we're like, no, she's having her experience. Let her have her experience. Don't disconnect from the training and don't move into that space of protecting, say, a victim. Because we are in an uncomfortable space, but we are in a safe space. And so those are kind of the distinctions we try to make, too. Yeah. Which that comfortable space, safe mm-hmm. space removes the victim. Yes. Quote, well, unquote, the victimhood of, of that. Right. Yeah. They only, you know, like they're not a victim. And, and the only no. way that they become a victim is, is if people begin to fall into their story. Right. Which, you know, there's a lot of enrolling that happens consciously and unconsciously, usually in those moments mm-hmm. where people want to go save. So you just toss a tissue. Well, actually, you know, in some of the trainings I've been in, uh, you know, People's Institute are really good Mm -hmm. about that. Don't give them the tissue. It takes them out of their experience, right? We're so quick to disconnect from feeling uncomfortable. And when we say, I can't imagine, you know, again, and this is speaking from my own personal experience, I can't imagine coming into this work and not at some point feeling guilt and shame because you know the harm that has been done. The difference is... Do you feel it so that you can move through and out of it, but still stay connected to it, mm-hmm. right? So that you don't dehumanize further as compared to getting stuck. Right. And making change along the way. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's important. What about, um, what about people of European descent who are like these, um, you know, racial equity activists right it's like um i've kind of i've kind of noticed and experienced where um you know there's there's people of european descent that is going out calling other people of european descent racist right (laughs) they're like you're racist and you're racist and what you did is racist and i'm like whoa it's a way to grab power it's a way to grab relational power um, especially if they're uh, if they're a person who um, if they're a person who has has not had um, who has not had power either because of circumstances in their own life or because of uh, um, or just be, you know because of the sometimes I think of it. I mean you know I mean again this is this is uh, you know I mean this is anecdotal I don't I don't have any data to back it up but. Sometimes I feel that when there are individuals who have experienced, as a, as a white person, right, has have experienced or lived in a household or um, had racist tendencies, that they overcompensate sometimes, where they don't want to be seen as an individual that is racist, so they go around telling other people that that look like them that they're that they're racist to take the to take the attention away and i don't know if that's a trauma response you know or something mm-hmm. like that but it, it feels like an internalized um i don't know maybe maybe that's sort of an internalized superiority like a deflecting also yeah, is right. what you're saying yeah. yeah and and i would think too that as people get awareness their response is less finessed in the beginning, right? Yeah. You, you are feeling emotions again that you don't want to feel. You're feeling, you know, even saying a term like take responsibility. There's a lot of people that struggle with, well, what does that mean? Like, right. you know, and that's why you get those phrases like, well, I, my family never had slaves, right? Yeah. How do I take responsibility for that, right? People are processing. And what we do want to do, I think those of us who have been in the work for a while, 
is you don't want them to stop. You don't want them to shut down. You want to pull them along further so that they have a deeper understanding. Their responses will be more finessed. Um, you know, how many years, I mean, decades have been in these conversations where really it's probably only been the last three years or so where we're really starting to come at it from a space of how do we move toward healing in this and not just beat up because you can't get the um, end result that you want the dismantling of whiteness the you know like how do you dismantle whiteness and Jeremy earlier said you know like you're trying to get folks to leave what they think is white um, American white identity to go to what right Right. You're going to leave something that you know for something you don't know and you have no idea about. Because, again, you know, we spoke about this when we were doing uh, history around colonization. White uh, folks who came over from Europe were assimilated. And within that process, they lost their connections in many cases to their um, ethnic heritage and their ancestors. Now, that wasn't done forcibly. They had a certain amount of choice in that, right? But a lot of times when you're in those situations, you don't feel like you have that much choice. Mm -hmm. So there's like this, this back and forth that I think a lot of whites go through. Regardless, you have a certain amount of whites that within one or two generations of their people immigrating over to America have lost their connection to their ethnicity. And you can't really recover that. Right. Like my grandfather came over from Poland. I don't know where from Poland they came from. I might be able to find that. I might not. So am I going to connect as closely as I would like? Is it okay to just connect enough to know that I'm half Polish, to know that somewhere around Warsaw I think the family came from? What does that mean? But it's in what we want folks to do, what we believe is part of the healing, is that we have to connect we have to go back and reconnect with our ancestral roots, no matter how much or little we know of that. Mm -hmm. Because that's where we regain our strength and understanding who we come from, uh, reconnecting with the nature, with the land. And that's why I noticed this time in particular, because usually when I hear, I gotta say, Jerry, when I, when I, do, when I hear land acknowledgements, most of the time I'm in an institution. Mm -hmm. I'm in a meeting or I'm in an event. I'm wearing my professional hat. When you just did the land acknowledgement here, I felt like I was having a spiritual experience. Mm. I felt like I was in, I don't go to church now, but church, right? Like it, to me, it was a whole different experience. And I'm thinking, why is that? Because one, I'm more comfortable here. I'm not an institution. I'm not putting on the facade of being a professional where I have to show up a certain way, right? Which is all bullshit too, but okay, right? Like here, I'm with friends. I can relax. And it was such a deep experience I had a little while ago when you did that. And I'm thinking, wow, my ancestors would be proud, mm. right? Yeah. Because it takes me back to my land and my ancestors, and I don't have to know their names. I don't have to see photos. I can just feel that power and that connection. And I think, I don't think it's just um, a myth or a hope that that's where we need to get more white folk. I think that is a reality, a deeper truth. Yeah. That's pretty, that's that's pretty powerful. That is pretty powerful. And I, I think I think what you, you nailed it, Chris. I think the the reason why we have to reach back to and I and uh you know ancestry ancestry gets us to um you know to to colonize Europe. And by colonized I mean Roman colonization, right? So ancestry gets us back to um you know 
oh my you know my my ancestors were Norwegian they were um, they were um, Welsh they were um, Kel you know and there's another one beyond that and indigenous European indigenous my ancestors were Celt my ancestors were Gaelic my you know and um, and the reason why we need to stretch back you know as far as we can even though we may not be able to to you know to to figure out um, every little detail in that is because what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a hermeneutic loop, um, and and um, and so the only way out of this identity and to see something beyond it is to reach back, touch what was back there, and then a loop is going to happen. Right? You got to trust it. It, it, it you got to trust it. A hermeneutic loop is going to happen, and it's going to jump over your present your present um, reality. And it's going to start to create a vision for a future. And, um, and I would say that, you know, I, I can talk about dismantling whiteness and, um, and removing the, the identity, the veil, the cloak of, um, of, of what it is to be a white American. Um, because that's my little sliver of it. But the reality is, is what we're really talking about here, what we're really focusing on as far as creating a future, is we're talking about dismantling colonized identities whether those colonized identities are identities of people of european diaspora or african diaspora or indigenous native american diaspora or polynesian diaspora wherever colonization colonization has has touched which is everywhere um we need to pull it back because what we're really talking about when we say colonization is we're talking about culture and um and oftentimes, you know, so and and there's a there's another term in between there that's used a lot in these kind of trainings that really throw people off, which is white supremacy culture. But what white supremacy culture is is it's normal everyday culture. The way I interact, the way I consume, what I buy, how I how I you know casually toss anything and everything into the garbage can. The structures of this of this culture, of this colonized culture that is going on 600 years strong since its inception is destroying us. It's destroying us. It's not only destroying our identities, which is evident in opioid epidemics and massive prescription, uh, you know, prescription drug, um, you know, culture, which uh, anti-anxiety, anti-depression. Um, it's not only that. You know, it's also the fact that we're 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 tearing into this planet in order to perpetuate an energy system that is is not sustainable. We're we're tearing into this planet for the rare earth elements in order to perpetuate, um, you know, a communication system that that um, that is extraordinarily powerful in its own hermeneutic loop um, within itself, reinforcing colonized culture, but not sustainable. If we're going to get past this, we got to have a vision for the future. And that vision is something that we can't even imagine. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not capitalism. It's not, it, it's, you know, it's none of these things. It's not Bitcoin. It's not, it's not these things. It's Aloha-ism. It, actually, it <laughs> might be. And there's an example of a hermeneutic loop, right? You've created, you, your dissertation has created a hermeneutic loop for yourself and for others that you share it with. You've reached back to your indigeneity. You've scraped through what was left because it was left in shambles by um, by, colonization. The, by the colonization right. of, of the Hawaiian and, and, and Polynesian people. You've reached back to your you've reached back and grabbed hold of Aloha, and in doing so, 
you've uh, you've expanded and evolved the definition by grabbing hold of what was likely the original understanding of the word from the Polynesian and indigenous people of Hawaii. And that in turn has created a vision for the future. That is the hermeneutic loop cycle that I'm talking about. Right. And essentially, um, I'm just kind of uh, reading off of the hermeneutic foundation. It's, a, it's kind of like the hero's journey. Right. And um, that's pretty much what it is. And so essentially, the hermeneutic loop describes the interrelationship between the whole of systems and its parts. We understand the whole based on the interpretation of the parts and our understanding of the parts is based on the understanding of their relationship to the whole. So if our understanding of a part, if our understanding of the part of the system changes, our understanding of the whole will also change. Right. And so that's the, uh, and you know, I mean, it's like, I, I love that. We, we talked a lot about that in our master's degree in whole systems design. Yeah. And you, by the, the way, just loop. described um, the function within hermeneutic loops of emergence. Yes. Right. By seeing, by seeing the whole, um, you know, by seeing the parts of the whole, something else emerges. Right. Right. And as our, as, as our ideas and perceptions change, it changes the entire perception, right. which means that, you know, like Chris, like you were talking about going back to your ancestry, mm-hmm. right? It's like when you reach back to your indigenous roots, to your own indigeneity, you'll have to kind of like come to this place like, what does it mean to be Polish? What does it mean to be Greek? What does it mean to be Norwegian? And then thinking about what does it mean to be American? That could, I mean, it's like just by, just by contemplating and reflecting on that, you, th- there's no other choice but to remove that veil of whiteness that was given to you through a structure to separate and divide individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that <clears throat> thereby is the process that we need. You know, the, the question now is we're so used to doing, say, um, anti-racism trainings a certain way or, you mm-hmm. know, the work. What work are we doing and how does that look? We're, you know, looking at policies and practices and we're doing all these things. And other than having some conversation around taking care of our health as we're doing this work, because we know the toxic stress that builds up over time, I don't hear much in the way of conversations around healing. Mm-hmm. And in some spaces, I think a lot of spaces, unless you have built context for that conversation, you can't, as a white person, come into a mixed room with BIPOC and start talking about whites needing to heal. They're going to kill you, <laughs> right? Like, so you know, I do think there's more strategy that and thought behind how it is we get more folks into these spaces. And it was interesting, Jerry. You and I were talking about Larry Ward and having read some of his work, and he was um, looking back at uh, everything from the Black Panthers to Margaret Wheatley, how they talk about getting into groups to have um, kind of like like conversations of how to move this so i do think sometimes we need to be in more like affinity or affiliation groups um but then it occurred to me well then what keeps 
something like a white supremacy group from being an affiliation group, right? And I, I think the core there is that you're you're looking for um, insight and wisdom around stopping the dehumanization of mm. colonization and whiteness, right? Well so that if every group that gathers, no matter how they gather to get the strength they need to do this work and to do their inner work as well as any outer work they're doing, like in institutions as an example, it has to be from the space of how are we regaining our humanity? Yeah. Because I don't think you can share space in that conversation with folks who are perpetuating racism, as an example. You know, right. and a lot of um, a lot of uh, Resmo Menachem talks about mm-hmm. the yes, trauma that's within the body. And it's mm-hmm. not just it's not just BIPOC that needs to heal, Correct. but we need to heal as a society, especially mm-hmm. with individuals of European descent. I think as you start to realize that, you know, um, that the the word just being white was written into law, so that way you were able to own land and you were able to do things that other people couldn't. Just that thought right there is like, oh my gosh, what have my ancestors done? What, well... I've got to carry this shit now, right? And then it's like taking that, you know, taking the responsibility and accountability to make changes in that. And then, you know, dealing with the uh, intersectionality for some individuals who are mixed, like myself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Being the colonizer right. and the colonized, right? You know, I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of things you have to unpack and sit on the table and, you know, separate and divide and critique and find yourself in that hermeneutic loop of what does this mean? What is, you know, how do I understand it? How does it relate to this other part of me? And how do I come to this place of forgiveness and healing? Right. Which is, which I feel we all need to do, regardless of whether we identify as white or BIPOC. Right. Because there is that... Um, and I know a lot of folks who lean into like the Buddhist philosophy will speak to that. The you know it's kind of like the first steps in some ways are the individual growth, awakeness, mm-hmm. right? To get beyond below the superficial nature of how we're socialized to live. All of that is for the greater connection of the society, of the community. It has to be at that level for right, us. Right. So if we want to vision without being a reaction to our current circumstances, if we want to vision what it looks like to live on a healthy planet, we have to be thinking in terms of community, right? The greater communities and not just US communities ultimately, but you know, but we start where we are and the starting point is for each of us individually to get as squared away as we can and not to wait to do some of this work until we're 100% healed, because I'm not sure we know what that looks like. So meanwhile, how do you continue your healing work, uh, your deeper personal work, as well as starting to look at how you um, support efforts in various communities or organizations, institutions? And Jeremy's favorite quote from Krishnamurti is? The only hope for humanity is the transformation of the individual. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's it right there. I, I love what you said a moment ago, though, Chris, about, you know, um, let's be comfortable with, with, with individuals gathering in affinity groups. And, I, and, I, and that is important because, um, because people are going to gather um, together not based off of um, phenotype or even necessarily racial identity, although it's going to look that way. 
and maybe that's currently the way it works, but but really what they're gathering towards is um, is um, I'm invested in doing this work. I'm invested in dismantling the colonization um, within myself. Um, for me, that means d- dismantling whiteness. Um, I'm going to gather with people who um, who who have a similar um, who have similar work to do. And um, and that's going to be the case no matter what what the you know the, those affinity groups are. So, and and without those affinity groups, really, what we're talking about is all we're talking about is is as Buckminster Fuller um, is um, was quoted as saying is you don't you don't um, uh, you don't change the system by by um, dismantling the system you're in. You change the system by creating a system next to it that makes the old system obsolete. Mm-hmm. Well, so so when we're looking outside of ourselves and we're saying we need to dismantle the system, down with capitalism, right? Okay, good, good great. Um, and you're not going to get anywhere. The work starts here in you, and um, and you dismantle that, and then through that hermeneutic loop, you pop up next to the system and you begin to gather in these in these cells. Of affinity groups and those cells begin to structure into a structure and that structure becomes the new system that's how it works right because it's like the current system right now a lot of time people say that the current system is broken it's not broken it is it doing exactly, exactly right. what it's supposed to be doing <laughs> yeah 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 it just doesn't work for you right right you know uh, oh you feel stuck um well stop railing against the up, system yes pull yourself up by your bootstraps right Right. It's like that yeah. whole bootstrap theory is that, um, yeah, you know, BIPOC people, the system that we that that's created was not created for somebody that looks like me or someone with darker melanin than me. Right. I, and, um, you know, I, I think it's important that, that we're that we're ga- I do think it's important that we're gathering and that we're talking about these things and that we're we're you know, I think marching is important. Um, you know, I don't consider myself an, an activist, um, though I will consider myself a, um, a, um, a, you know, a, a partner in that work, um, because, because the work does start individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So, um, as we, as we're talking about all of this, it just kind of like, if you were able and I'm going to ask both of you this. If you were able to just um, talk to white people about what critical race theory is in just a sentence or two, what would you, what would you tell them? What is critical race theory? <laughs> Chris points to me. Um, well, the first thing I would say is that um, it's a it's a misnomer to think that it's it's some individual theory that's being taught. That's not what it is. What it is is it's a collection of theories, dissertations that were written um, between the mid '80s um, to the late '90s and gathered together um, on um, addressing the social implications of race in America. The reason why that timing is important, the 80s to the 90s, and the reason why um, social implication is what they end up addressing is because we address the legal implications of racism in America 
um, or at least started to, with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So that addressed the the you know the 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 racist laws that had been perpetuated since the inception of this country, um, the very first of which being writing um, who could own land and perpetuate power as being white, literally written into the Virginia colony law and being transposed into the into the into the um, into the state laws when the United States formed. So that's addressed with the civil rights, but the social implications were never, um, you know, were, were, are, are still being addressed to this day. So, um, so, so that's what critical race theory is attempting to do. And um, I would, I, but I would also say that there are a whole bunch of people who are in positions of, um, you know, of, of doing work around equity that are utilizing critical race theory the wrong way and um and harm Say more about the wrong way what is the wrong way well uh okay so so the this whole thing about you know the the fox news story about the 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 mother you know who's upset and crying and and railing at the school board because her child came home and said mommy am i am i a bad person because i'm white okay there's a whole bunch there to unpack, you know, um, but let's just assume that somebody doing the work in a classroom um, made the explicit um, connection between, um, you know, and it could have, I don't know, it could have happened in a lot of ways. All the white kids on this side of the room, all the, all the, you know, children of color on this side of the room, if you're white, you know, and, and, you know, going through, right. So going through like, um, power and privilege conversations with a fifth grader. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, like, like that, that to a fifth grader. Right. Yeah. Like, like what are we doing? Right. You know, like let's have some context here. Um, and, um, and I was just gonna say, it's not because the fifth grader can't comprehend it. Yeah. It's because we pluck it out in our typical educational way and feed it to them with, like you're saying, without the context. Because I've been in spaces like for, with freedom schools where you have five to seven intensive days where you're working with youth and they so get it. Whites, BIPOC, gender inclusive, you know, everything, everything. They understand it. It resonates with them because they don't have all the socialization we get, one being older, two, the experiences that we've had as well. So they're just... I just think a lot of times when, so the child comes to the mom, asks that question, if you're in a space to have that conversation with that child, they're going to understand. If you're not in that space, if you don't understand your whiteness right. and power and privilege, right. and you become um, emotionally triggered. You're and now activated. Now you're activated. Guess what? Then that child all of a sudden is getting the, their response. They're getting socialized by you as to how they should react to that conversation. Right. So, I, you know, that's kind of the misnomer. How do, we, how do we teach fifth graders about race and power and privilege? I think you're the better person to answer that, honestly. I think that, that the I'm work, asking you two as white people. Right. I don't have all the answers. So, <laughs> so how would you do it? What would you say, Chris? Well, I was just going to say, the kids inherently, I think one of the things they have going for them is they understand fairness right yes. off the bat. Yep. 
they come into this world somehow really having a strong understanding of fairness. You build everything off of that. You know, like, is this fair that this happens? Is this law fair? Is uh, the way we, we teach you the, the format of K-12, is that fair to all the children and how they want to learn? Like, you just have those conversations, and then you can slowly start to build in, depending on, you know, the age of the child, a little more about history. You know, you ask most kids, you give them the history of what happens to, like, indigenous folk and their history in this country you don't have to use terms like genocide right they get it right they like this happened and they don't question it usually they don't disbelieve because i think most of us it's the socialization of whiteness and our fragility that makes us like push back but you hear a story like we heard you know racial equity day when chelsea shared her story of growing up on the in talela i don't know as uh, myself, speaking again for myself, I don't know how you would hear that story and you would claim that there was any untruth to it. Right. Yeah. How would someone listen to that authentic, heartfelt story with everything that happened to the Native population out in Tulela, the residential schools and everything else, and claim bullshit? Yep. Really? Like, I just don't know how. And, but that's, you know, again, that's the fragility, that's the fear, that's the anger, that's the believing in the um, soundbite, the dog whistle, all the things we're calling these things now, <laughs> the rhetoric that comes at people, right, nonstop on their Facebook feed or wherever they're getting their information. Which is a hermeneutic loop. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy's going to be stuck one. on that well, one. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that what you're saying, Chris, is right on, right? Like, let's, let's, okay, instead of dividing kids um, up by phenotype and having, you know, and, and having this conversation about power and privilege dynamics out of the blue, right? Like, like we haven't prepped anything, you know, no groundwork's been laid. How about we start with actual history? You know, let's talk about who Christopher Columbus really was. Right. Let's talk about the fact that Christopher Columbus knew exactly what was on the other side of the Atlantic because he had Portuguese maps that had been collected from a Chinese fleet 70 years previous that had circumnavigated the world. He knew the indigenous populations were here. He knew that the rumors of, of riches were here. He, he knew these things. He came here for a reason. And um, he was not looking for a trade route to Asia. That's bullshit. Stop perpetuating that. How about we talk about um, uh, Lewis and Clark and how we celebrate these two brave men who made their way across the, the wilderness of, 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 uh, of the United States for the first time. Bullshit. <laughs> the Spanish were here 300 years previous. You don't think they made their way into, into the northern territories of their territory, quote unquote, their territory? You don't think that they sent explorers as far north as Wyoming, maybe even Montana, perhaps even Canada? How yeah. about we talk about the Viking explorers that landed here um, before the before the Spanish even left Europe? Right, right. You know, I, like uh, you know, and and these are all elements of colonization. But what they're but what they also are is that they're elements of actual history, not some bullshit version that is designed in order to make us feel good about about the world we live in because we need to get real about the world we live in it's 
harmful. And I think that's what critical race theory is, right? It's like critical race theory is just saying, look at the history, question the history that we are teaching in our schools and interrogate that as adults, not as children. Adults should be interrogating the history that we are placing in front of our kids. And are we perpetuating the racist history that has, you know, that has been put in place? Or are we unpacking that and saying, wait, hold on here, this isn't the way that it happened. I mean, sometimes I feel that it's easier to just talk about how Christopher Columbus came and discovered America, right? It's a feel good, look at what we've done, look at what we've created, we have all of these things where if we go into the real history, yeah. there's going to be pain, there's yeah. going to be that shaming or that guilt, right? But I don't think it's, I don't think it's other people, I don't think it's BIPOC looking at the white people saying, shame on you, look at this. I think it is a self-reflection for some people of European descent that is discovering for the first time or rediscovering that, wow, the history that I've learned and the history of who I am as a, as a white European person is kind of fucked up. Right. 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 So yeah. it's a, I, think, I think there's a lot of self-reflection that needs to go into that where sometimes people will be ashamed of who they are that right. little kid that says if you can take pride in something right you can also take accountability and shame in well, something that's the difference too and i and i do think you know, i'm not a psychologist of children but um from what i've seen again with youth being involved in these types of conversations is that they will feel emotions like sadness or like anger or you know so like if you if you get a middle schooler and you're teaching them uh take a Thanksgiving as an example, right? That Columbus didn't come over, the pilgrims didn't have this feast, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, hey, you know, what What would it look like if foreigners came to the shores and folks were already living there? Right. And they all of a sudden wanted to take the land and find a way to live. So they're taking trees and food. And oh, by the way, you know, they have different diseases which most of us can relate to even better now with COVID, right? Like mm-hmm. what that looks like when it spreads. And next thing you know, those of the folks, the indigenous folks who were living there were pushed away. What's your response to that? I don't think the kids feel guilt and shame. I don't think the adults should either. Agreed. They, they, should, feel, they should feel something <laughs> because <laughs> fairness was not there. Right. And then, you know, it gets even worse because we know that then eventually that was legalized and perpetuated and all those other pieces, right? But I think that's how you enter these conversations. And I do think it comes back to a sense of what's inherently right and wrong. And I think most people get that. Again, whites are socialized to have a negative reaction. And in that, that's where the guilt and the shame and the anger and the pushback and the fragility and the tears all come from. Right. Right. But it's only going to be through conversation and relationships and relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a willingness to, um, to be brave in those conversations, right? Um, courageous spaces. Exactly. Not, not safe spaces. Let, let's not create safe spaces. Let's have courageous, courageous conversations. Right. You know, let's not work to harm each other. Uh, but let's be, you know, let's, let's look at 
you know, let's look at the at, at the evidence before us. And there's so many tools <clears throat> out there, right? We do have Glenn Singleton's work, right, on courageous conversations about race. And it's about being able to have these conversations that's going to make us feel uncomfortable. But <clears throat> we have to stay engaged. We have to stay engaged. We have to experience discomfort. We've got to be able to speak our truth, right? Those are all the um, agreements of courageous conversations. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we've got the evolution of aloha as well, too, which is to ask questions, right? Not just ask questions of the person across of you, but ask questions of yourself as well, too. Listen with the intention to understand and not judge, but also listen to that ancestral wisdom that is coming in from, you know, another realm, right? Listen to those, listen to those words of your ancestors. Observe, observe what's happening in your body, right? It's like, it's, it's finding that place where it's like, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable and not blaming the person across that you're making me feel uncomfortable. It's asking a question, why am I triggered by this? Why am I feeling this way, right? So that's the, the observation, the somatic response that um, Resma Menachem talks about a lot. And then leading with the heart, always being heart-centered in it, where you can find that empathy and that grace and the compassion, the ability to suffer with when you hear about the histories that we're not always told, which leads to the acceptance and adaptability of different ways of understanding and being and co-creating. So we've got, we've got tools out there to be able to engage in these kinds of conversations, and we need to be able to utilize them, especially now that the holidays are coming up. That's when we have like these great conversations around food. <laughs> yeah. Ask, listen, observe, art, acceptance, and adapt. Yep. Yeah. That Absolutely. is um, a formula for creating a positive hermeneutic loop. Again. In, and by the way, that hermeneutic loop goes in two directions, right? It's not just a hermeneutic loop between me and the person I'm having a conversation with. It's a hermeneutic loop between me and ego and heart and, and what's behind ego. Cultivating, being able to listen to the voice behind the ego, the silent wind. Absolutely. And I think this is the uh, perfect time to wrap this up. Chris, thank you so much for oh, thank you. being here. And um, yes. Um. So if you um, if you're catching this podcast, you can you can find more information in a couple different places. You can you can go to plowline.com. There you'll find the podcast that uh, that we produce at Plowline, which is this podcast as well as the Mixplate podcast that Jerry hosts in an interview format. If you have not heard that yet, you really need to go and check it out. Jerry is extraordinarily talented in being able to hold these conversations with people. Um, and oftentimes doing it through Zoom. Um, so uh, go check out the Mixed Plate podcast. You can also find upcoming books that are there, which include The Evolution of Aloha, as well as Dismantling Whiteness, and a future book called The Colonized Mind. We also have a Patreon page. If you like what, what's going on here and you like, um, you like how these conversations go and you want to participate in this work, you want to be a partner in this work, you can go to Patreon and you can, um, you can do that. Uh, so patreon.com backslash mixed plate podcast is the current place where we are hosting all of our partnership opportunities. So again, it's patreon.com backslash mixed plate podcast. And finally, 
if you're interested in, we didn't even get to, we didn't even get to, to the, the consulting work that the three of us do. Right. Um, so we're going to have to have another conversation. But, um, but if you're interested in, um, in having these kind of conversations um, or even creating a format in which you can hold these conversations in your workplace um, or your organization, then we can help you. Uh, go to co3consulting.net. Uh, and that's C-O number three, consulting.net. Yeah. And uh, Jerry and Chris and I all, um, all have uh, um, elements of programs on there that we've created in order to, um, in order to hold these conversations and, um, and do so in ways that are graceful and uh, empathetic, but at the same time, impactful. Chris? Do you have anything you'd like to say? I think you said it all. That was perfect. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Please uh, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And uh, hui ho. We'll see you soon.